Hello and welcome to Screen Cleaning, the show that is all about shining a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week to do our darndest to tell you about movies, TV shows, other types of entertainment that maybe fly under the radar a little bit. Or that we just really want to talk about, right? And to make the connections in that entertainment world, to bring television and movies and music all together, and talk about what is pop culture. And today we're going to do it in a unique way. Well, not too unique, because we've kind of done this before, but we're taking a journey through the ages backwards through the decades of film and talking about what they meant at the time, what we were doing in movies at the time, that sort of thing. And we've already covered the 2010s, that decade that we just finished, that I think a lot of people would be happy to put behind them, or at least one year in particular that we've decided we will no longer mention it by name. Um, That was technically in this decade. The 10s ended before we got to... Anyway... I I digress. The 20s. The point I'm trying to make is you can go back and listen to that episode and hear what we thought of the 2010s and what trends we saw and some of our favorite films from the 2010s by Googling Screen Cleaning Podcast or downloading that podcast anywhere you get podcasts. And there you'll find that episode as well as uh, over 100 episodes right there at your fingertips. But today... As Cole said, we're bringing you the 2000s. So what were you doing in movies in the 2000s, Jeffrey? 2000, you graduated high school in 2000, 2001. One. So you were so, starting your adult life. This is a know, good time. The early 2000s, I was seeing pretty much any and every movie that was coming out in movie theaters. May or may not have snuck in some uh, some Chinese food takeout into these movies. That's bold. I've snuck like <laughs> a can of soda or a candy bar. Oh, I just went. I've to never the, brought like a meal. The last movie that I went to uh, with you guys to go see Minari. Yeah. Somebody had snuck in this big this big clamshell case of Chinese food <laughs> that I noticed immediately upon entering the movie theater. Are you sure they didn't just get it at the box office? Oh, I'm positive because Our... they're they're very limited in their concessions right now because of COVID. That's true. Right? So, yeah, I was seeing a lot of movies, maybe taking uh, some some food in there with me. This may have been around the time, too, where I was actually saving my ticket stubs to every movie that I went to, and I just held, kept them in a little Ziploc bag and thought one day I was going to do something with them. I did eventually do something with them, and I threw them in the <laughs> trash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was in high school in the 2000s. I got my first car in the 2000s. My ticket stubs that I was saving just ended up in my jeans pockets or around the floor of my car. I keep a very tidy room, and I keep a very tidy house, and I just converge all of my messy clutter into my car. And that's been the case since my first car that I got in the 2000s, including all the ticket stubs and movie stuff. That your I would car get. is your junk drawer, Cole. That's tr- really true because yes. I don't have a junk drawer in my house. <laughs> it's if just I a much junk, bigger junk drawer in my car, <laughs> but not too big because your car is not gargantuan. So I, I can appreciate that. I respect that. I I've, wish my house was more clutter free. I've always been a small car guy. I drive a Yaris now. I drive. I drove an Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais in the 2000s. Whereas I a drive, by the way, I drive a 2004 uh, Toyota Camry Solara, and that thing—it's a little red car. It looks like it could speed. Feels like it's a boat too. Like <laughs> that thing looks big. I I was going on dates for the first time in the 2000s. Yeah. Taking taking girls to movies was okay. new for me in this decade. Yeah, and 
one of the things that we're going to be talking about is adaptations, these big blockbuster adaptations of these book series that, you know, either came out decades ago or were happening at the time, meaning they were cranking out the movies just as fast as the books were coming out, right? And I was in an interesting place with some of these franchises because um, in the early 2000s, I actually moved away from the United States for a couple of years and lived in Russia and did not have access to a lot of these movies. So how cruel is this, Cole? I saw the first Lord of the Rings movie and I saw the first Harry Potter movie and then moved away for a couple of years Oof! and then came back and felt like I was... uh, I wasn't in the know like everybody else was part of the zeitgeist. And I, you know, and uh, I just was totally in the dark. You got left behind. Yeah. I felt like I had all this catching up to do. And so your experiences with some of these movies and books even was, I'm sure, totally different than my experience approaching these. Your mileage may vary. 2001 was so unique because you're right. Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter both launched right at the beginning of the decade, and they took us, Harry Potter took us through the whole decade. Lord of the Rings, they they got them one right after another, right after another. I was still a kid, right? A decade's a long time. Ten years uh, for the life of someone that's between the ages of like 10 and 20 is a long time. It's 50% of your life. And so I still remember being like a nine-year-old seeing Fellowship of the Ring, And at the very end, screaming no at the movie screen. Like, how could they end it right here? This is a cliffhanger. I'm ready for Two Towers now. And so my my parents and I, we went home and we went back and reread the books because that's what what the culture was keyed in on in the 2000s decade was books and reading. And how cool is that for, like, kids, right? We were promoting books. Yeah, I do remember feeling how cruel it was at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring that they ended it there and... Oh my gosh, we got to wait a whole another year before we we find out what happens. And even more sinister and cruel would be the ending to the Two Towers, where you just have uh, you have Gollum just very sinister, sinisterly mm. leading Sam and Frodo Baggins uh, to, unbeknownst to them, and what golem thinks is their death right he's gonna he's gonna overpower them and get that ring oh it gives me the chills every time i see the ending of the two towers um and but how even more cruel that we got the theatrical versions in theater and not those extended cuts which obviously know, existed right? yeah absolutely the only way to watch these movies now yeah and i i've got to tell you this cole i have not read every single one of these lord of the rings books which is interesting because I heard that when uh, Tolkien wrote this book, he wanted to release it in just one large volume, and apparently the publishers weren't having it, and clearly the movie makers and movie studios wanted to split these up wisely because what you have here is a solid, probably the most one of the most solid trilogies I have ever seen outside of the first three Toy Story movies, right? I mean, uh, yeah, as far as consistency and as goes, far as adaptations as far are as concerned, this has got to be world. This has got to be the greatest uh, from transition from from book to screen. This has got to be the sol- most solid um, book adaptation I have ever seen on screen, and we can say that confidently. Oh, because yes. we have seen 
a lot of them. And in this decade, after The Lord of the Rings shot to success and Harry Potter for a a slightly younger generation also was seeing a lot of box office success, it became the trend in the business of movies to just churn out anything that young people were reading into a movie, whether it's, and, and especially in this fantasy sorcery, and then apocalyptic genres. Sure. And we'll share some examples of times that that worked really, really well. And Lion, some... the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Um, no. Really well? Uh, well, I mean, let's, let's come back to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, okay? And then finish your thought where it did not work, yes. like Aragon. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to a certain extent, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe didn't probably pan out the way they thought that would either. And let's talk about something that did work well to illustrate why some of these others didn't work well, or just to juxtapose them, I guess. Harry Potter, obviously, and we're seeing here how they are trying to crank out those movies just as fast as J.K. Rowling can produce them, and they're doing just that. And what's great about this is that you're seeing These young people grow up on screen and they are playing the age that they actually are in real life, which is another thing that's really, really cool that you don't often see in movies in general. I was a young person going to midnight premieres of the movies and also going to the midnight release of the books. It's weird to think about a time when Harry Potter wasn't totally finished. The midnight premiere of the book. Yeah. From books five, six and seven on five, starting with book five. I went to Walmart at midnight to just pick up my copy. And were there other people there with you? I remember very distinctly to pick up Order of the Phoenix. I was the only one in my small town Walmart and they let me have it like 10 minutes early because I showed up like 25 half an hour early with my parents ready to get it. And they were like, "Uh, there's no one else here. Just check out. It's fine. Like they had the little display, but it was nothing big. And then by the time the seventh one came out, they gave us little wristbands to go along with it. There was a long line and it was kind of a party because it was the last book. But the I first love that movie came I can't out. tell you how much I love that picture of you going to Walmart, <laughs> picking up that first copy of Order of the Phoenix. It's just a great picture to have in my mind. That first movie came out before Order of the Phoenix, the book, was even released. The movie came out in 2001, and at that time, Goblet of Fire had just come out. We didn't know how this was going to end yeah. when we cast Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and Rupert Grint and everyone that made those movies into something successful. And it it truly did. Harry Potter dominated this decade. Yeah. The Da Vinci Code is another one that comes to mind where you have this Dan Brown series where you have this professor that is also kind of like this Indiana – it's like the Indiana Jones of museums, right? Uh, I mean, Indiana Jones is the Indiana Jones of museums. Well, this should be in a museum uh, of like <laughs> of what's the word? What's what am I looking for? Because what did he his art? big thing was art? Yeah, yeah. Strictly da Vinci Code art, was right. Um, unfortunately, what we're seeing with the Da Vinci Code series is that with each passing film, the there's a decline in quality. So right now, we can talk about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because they didn't even get to finish their series. The first one, I really do think, was a very good adaptation. And then Prince Caspian was okay. And then Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is my favorite book, was kind of a bad movie. And then we gave up before we even yeah, got to the Silver the other Chair ones? or Horse and His Boy, The Last Battle. Horse and His Boy is kind of an offshoot, though, isn't it? It's It's a little bit of a... 
not a spinoff, but it kind of departs a little bit from the, the magician's main story nephew is totally different as well. And I think yeah. that's my second favorite book. Those books in general, it's tough to figure out what order you're supposed to watch them in or, or read them, whether it was the release order or the chronological order. And the movies kind of fell into that same trap where we have these core characters and we have these kids that people want to attach to and think about, hey, these these are kids like Harry Potter's a kid. And not all the books have those kids. I've got an interesting relationship with those Da Vinci Code books because I remember reading the Da Vinci Code for the first time. And first first of all, Cole, you know this about me. Um, I'm a big fan of short chapters. And Dan Brown does a lot of short chapters with a lot of cliffhangers, right? So that's right up my alley. Really enjoyed the book. Then I went to go see the movie with Tom Hanks and Ian McKellen. And an interesting thing happened. You know, you always hear people say, oh, the book was way better than the movie, right? But what happened with the movie, not only was the book better than the movie, but I disliked the movie so much that it made me start to dislike The Da Vinci Code, the book. Does that ever happen to you, Cole? I mean, oftentimes in these especially YA dystopian fiction that became very popular with The Hunger Games and Divergent and The Maze Runner that all went on the heels of Harry Potter and Twilight. I When I saw it in person, when I saw the movie and I heard the dialogue come out of these kids' mouth, I realized just how kind of juvenile it all was and it yes. made me reconsider the books. Yeah. It didn't help that I'd aged a couple years and if I went back and revisited the books as a 20-year-old I would have a very different reaction than on when you're 15 and you just love everything about it. Yeah. The, a movie can be unfortunately can be really good at highlighting a book's flaws or the story's flaws, right? And you didn't realize it when you were in that world, when you had that book in your hands and you were just sucked into the story. The movie sometimes will come out and you'll realize, oh, this is kind of preposterous, right? And that's what happened with me with The Da Vinci Code. And then I had another interesting experience as I didn't read Angels and Demons, but I listened to the audiobook. And I remember listening to it all the way through and thinking, wait, wait, did I miss something? I feel like I'm really confused and I didn't know what was going on. Come to find out, I had unknowingly picked up the, uh, I don't know what you call it, oh, the abridged audio version of Angels and Demons. So, yeah, they had cut out parts of the book that I wasn't privy to, and so I was totally confused, and that kind of sullied my experience with that story. And so, yeah, the Da Vinci Code series is not really one that I'm eager to revisit, maybe in book form, but certainly not in movie form. So those kind of adult books, the the books that were written for adults, also found fame on the big screen in awards categories, too, in 2007 Mm -hmm. especially. Oh, yeah. No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood were both based on books and both considered by critics the best movies of the entire decade. Yes, yes. Tackled by two very different filmmakers with the Coen Brothers or PTA. And you're giving me quite... The pause, Cole, because you asked me before we hit the hit the go on the microphones and something that we're going to get to later on in this episode is what is your favorite movie of the 2000s? And you keep bringing up some really amazing movies that I'm going to have a hard time, you know, picking between the, the two or three or five of them. Right. It's a whole decade of movies. we got to pick one. So speaking of No Country for Old Men, you kind of got the sense that, oh, maybe they're going to. Maybe there's going to be this 
real big Cormac McCarthy movement in movies, right? And, you know, you, we've seen Cormac McCarthy books made into movies before. Uh, there's, you know, All the Pretty Horses. We mentioned No Country for Old Men. But you got the sense that when The Road came out, that they were maybe going to try to make a go of this, maybe like a Cormac McCarthy cinematic universe or something, right? The Road did not fare as well at the movie theaters as did uh, No Country for Old Men. But to be fair, these are all different stories. It's not like Cormac McCarthy was doing all these sequels to a really popular book. So his his writing style is very unique as well because he doesn't really use punctuation. And it really throws you off when you first are introduced to a Cormac McCarthy book. You guys definitely need to check it out if you haven't already. But reading No Country for Old Men and reading The Road was kind of a bizarre experience because you're expecting all this punctuation that you would see in pretty much every other book, and it's not there. And it's really kind of cool, actually. I kind of like it because it really engages you more as a reader, I feel, because you're having to do some of that work, whereas the author usually pulls that weight for you, right? Um, another example, I mean, we could rattle off several other series where you could tell they wanted to have a franchise and it just didn't pan out. You already mentioned Aragon, Cole. There's the Spiderwick Chronicles. Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Right. They did, a, you know, they tried to do one or two of those sequels and it just didn't pan out the way Very they hoped bad. it would. Very Ink, bad movies. Inkheart and The Golden Compass as Which well. The Golden Compass is, The Golden Compass's Source material now has a second home on HBO. There where you people go. are coming upon that. But books, the the original like Lord of the Rings fantasy epic kind of splintered us in two different directions. We had these book adaptations, and we also got a lot of like sword and sandal stuff, like fantasy mm. period dramas. Yeah. Gladiator, of course, started the decade winning Academy Awards, being kind of a crowd pleasing dude awesome movie. And then we got a lot of worse versions of that like Troy was in this decade and then as we journey further down the branch of YA genre fiction we get all of these apocalyptic novels that I mentioned Divergent and The Maze Runner right. some of which they weren't even able to finish because the the gusto of the energy of the people watching them just ran out by the time they got through four or five different books to adapt and we just were done with it by now Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's still a theme that we see that's very prominent in books and movies today. I don't know. I I don't know if it's successful from the 2000s decade, though. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because people love I don't know why people love imagining our future as something that's so incredibly bleak, but maybe it's just because it makes for the dramatic stakes are higher when things aren't so great in the future. I don't know. Maybe who's going to tune in for a book or a movie that, you know, has an optimistic future in mind, right? Because There's there's always a a contrast. There's always a few. But we did see, especially in the late 2000s, leading into the 2010s, where The Walking Dead comes out on TV, Zombieland and Shaun of the Dead are both in the, the 2000s, bringing zombies into our cultural phenomenon that we've also cast away in less than a decade's time. It it must be noted in this conversation, though, Cole, this is also where another curious trend is creeping up in movies in the late 2000s. And that is you have these movie studios that are realizing, oh, no, 
we're only going to be able to have seven Harry Potter movies. Oh, no, we're only going to be able to have three Twilight movies. There were four books. Oh, we're only going to be able to have four Twilight books. That shows you how much I know about Twilight. I think I... No, I never read the book, but I did see the movie only because I was going to a comedy show where they were going to be spoofing Twilight. So I wanted to be in the know, right? And uh, so here's the deal, Cole. These movie studios are starting to think, how can we squeeze a little more juice out of this out of this orange or in some cases this lemon, right? Um, and what they would do is they would take the last book in the series and they would chop it in half and voila, there's two movies. I bet in retrospect they may have been thinking, why didn't we do that with all seven of these Harry Potter books, right? There's certainly enough content in these books. And as you get further along in the series, it really becomes difficult to try to squeeze everything into the book into one movie. So I can certainly appreciate from an artistic standpoint why they would do that. But I, I have to believe that it was motivated by the almighty dollar, right? Artistry normally takes a backseat to business. Yes. And... And it culminated, I think, in the worst possible way, diving into like the 2010s. But it's it's the fault of the 2000s that we had Peter Jackson's The Hobbit oh. instead of Guillermo del Toro's two part Hobbit that was going to be imaginative, going to do something different. No, people just wanted the same thing they had at the beginning of the last decade. So let's run it back with the same production crew in the same place with the same director and drive poor Peter Jackson into the ground with how heavy the production schedule became and dividing it into three movies, not even two, even though The Hobbit, the book, is shorter than any one and of The Lord of the Rings. And completely obliterating the original tone Goodness. of The Hobbit, right? Yeah. I mean, it's The Hobbit... Uh, if it were the Lord of the Rings, basically is what it is. If you've read The Hobbit, you know it's this Fun charming children's adventure. adventure, right? However, I will say The Hobbit contains what I consider to be my favorite chapter of any book. And it's one of the scariest chapters of any book that I've ever read. The name of the chapter or the title of the chapter is Riddles in the Dark. And so you can imagine what how— has it got in its pockets? Yes. How, how, how disappointed I was to see that scene played out on the big screen. And it wasn't in the dark. And it wasn't terrifying because by then we all had come to know and love Gollum and didn't really see him as this scary, terrifying being anymore. He's just this beloved character from the Lord of the Rings movies that now I just couldn't take seriously on the big screen. But yeah, he had to go and make, he had to have too much of a good thing and split it up into three movies. And, uh, oh, it was so disappointing. But the first time we saw Gollum back in the early 2000s, it seemed like this is what the future of film could be because we were seeing a fully animated character interact with live action people. Gollum wasn't actually the first, but he was the best executed. Oh, sure. Uh, Jar Jar Binks in 1999's The Phantom Menace was actually the Mm. first fully CGI Mm. character to be in a live action movie. But we're going to talk about some of the innovations in animation when we come back here on our 2000s retrospective on Screen Cleaning.
2000-00. We're talking about the year 2000 and the whole decade that came. Thank you very much, Prince. This is Screen Cleaning. And I want to talk just for a moment before we get back into movies about music. And I promise, I promise it is going to connect. Because in the 2000s, there was a big change in popular music. Popular movies is what we normally get to talk about. But boy bands were sweeping the nation. <laughs> Back- Backstreet Boys came out with Millennium and then Black and Blue the following year. No Strings Attached was in sync. And we were yeah. seeing that battle between the, the manufactured right boy band industrial complex battle that they were feeding us. But these pretty white boys that were up and, and being posted as the pop idols of the time and Justin Timberlake being one of them and him kind of carrying his career, it mirrored a certain actor that was on the screen too, Mm. where in the late nineties they were every girl's fantasy. And then it carried through popularity and success in the two thousands. We're talking about Leonardo DiCaprio, how at the end of the nineties in 1997 in Titanic, he was on everyone's radar and then it shot him into a wonderful two thousands. You know, I'm I'm looking at this list of films that he did in the 2000s, and to be honest with you, there are a few of them that I have never seen, like Revolutionary Road and Blood Diamond and Body of Lies and The Beach, films that I've never seen. But boy, oh boy, what a great decade for, for any actor, and in particular Leonardo DiCaprio, who got two Oscar, Oscar nominations during the 2000s. For the, the Aviator and for Blood Diamond. That's right. He won neither of them. That Oscar would come later in what many would say, including yours truly, a consolation Oscar, to be sure, because he's got better work than The Revenant. He deserved it for The Revenant, nah. right? But at that point in his career... The Oscar industry, the the business of movies, was just so desperate to give him an Oscar that they crafted <laughs> the movie so that he could. And he did deserve it. He was good. Yeah. But, like... It wasn't as great as performance. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I do think his greatest work came here in the 2000s. Catch Me If You Can and Gangs of New York both came out the same year in 2000. Holy cow. Catch Me If You Can is... I mean, speaking of adaptations, that is an adaptation of a book about something that really happened, right? Now, even the book needs to be taken with a grain of salt because it's put together by a ghostwriter. And how that works is, you know, the ghostwriter sits down with the real-life subject, they interview them a few times, and then they just go off and write their very own story, right? I do enjoy the book a little more than the movie, but that movie is just so entertaining And you've got Tom Hanks there. You've got Leonardo DiCaprio, even Amy Adams earlier on in her career as Mm -hmm. well. But I think a lot of people like rooting for this. I wouldn't call him a Robin Hood type of a character because he wasn't giving his money to the poor. But he tried to make a point of stealing from these institutions and never from actual people so that, you know, these institutions were insured. They could afford to lose some money here and there. It just so happens that his money that he stole here and there added up to quite a tidy sum. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio had a big hand in the making of this film and, you know, bringing the story to the big screen and and deciding which scenes were going to end up in the movie and which ones were not. And uh, boy, oh boy, that's probably of his movies from the 2000s. That's got to be my favorite performance of his in uh, my favorite movie of his from the 2000s. 
That was a single great, like, Leo performance, but I love when great artists hitch their wagons to other great artists. And yeah. halfway through the decade, Leo became associated with Martin Scorsese, and we get The Aviator, like I said, Best Actor nomination, but then also The Departed, where Scorsese finally gets his Oscar, and then Shutter Island, right at the, the dawn of the next decade. I, I want to include Shutter Island and Inception as the great Leo decade for the 2000s, even though it was just on the other side into the 2010s, because that's when he reached his peak of just box office power in a way that we haven't seen movie stars be in the following decade, right? The 2000s took over and it was all about intellectual property and what franchise you're part of and which characters you're playing that brings the box office draw, whereas Leo the Guy was a box office draw in the 2000s. And four of those movies you just mentioned were nominated for Best Picture. One of them went on to win Best Picture, and that is The Departed. So, yeah, quite a career and quite a decade for Leonardo DiCaprio. Another thing that you kind of teased before the break, though, Cole, that was really becoming more prominent in the early 2000s was this surge in not only animated movies, but in Really good animated movies. Most of them coming from, no surprise here, Pixar Studios. And different looking animated movies. Right. Because Pixar, before the 2000s broke, before this new millennium came to us, they had Toy Story, they had Bugs Life, and they had a Toy Story sequel. And sure, that sequel was like the greatest sequel that had ever happened. And it was weird that a Disney sequel didn't just go straight to VHS, that it was a box office release. But we weren't sure what this new like Disney offshoot was going to bring us. And then it was Pixar that dominated the decade and Disney that kind of fell under the radar. And we're seeing a giant shift from 2D animation to computer animated movies, right? And, uh, you know, that still to this day makes me a little sad. And so I, I do try to support movies that are still animated in 2D. Towards the end of the decade, Disney gave a couple last gasps to it by yeah. Princess and the Frog Princess coming the out Frog. in 2009. And then the Winnie the Pooh movie that looks just like maybe even just prettier than that original Adventures of Winnie the Pooh that I, that I grew up watching. They were 2D drawn. But that was kind of it that we got from Disney. And we can certainly – we'll talk more about Pixar in more detail here in just a minute. But I, I don't think the influence of Shrek can be understated either. OK. I'm a little biased because um, this movie came out the year that I was a senior in high school. I remember going to see it in the movie theaters. Loved it. When DVD players started coming out around this time, I actually – uh, went out and bought one right away. I was the youngest person in my family. I was the first person to own a DVD player. And the very first DVD that I owned was Shrek. And I'm proud to say that that was the first DVD that I owned. Because, and then partially because of Shrek and the rise of Pixar Studios and right, Disney's but, prominence in the 90s, the Oscars even yes. carve out a little, a little space in their ceremony for a best animated feature. Absolutely. And Shrek wins the very first one. And, you know, it's interesting because we're also starting to see here, and you kind of teased it a little bit with different looking types of animated movies. In the content, we're starting to see a shift as well because we're not seeing movies about princesses anymore. We're seeing great stories that just happen to be animated, right? And Shrek is very much a spoof of that 
princess fairy tale happily ever after. Once a I, perfect spoof comes out, it's tough to yes. get a genuine version of what it's spoofing. And, and Shrek destroyed yep. fairy tales. Yes, but I have to say, I don't necessarily consider Shrek to be a children's movie. I've always kind of seen it as a more adult movie. There's a lot of risque and adult humor. It's a teen. It's a perfect teen where like you first realize that the like fairy tales of your youth were more complicated than they seem. And now you want to just like start making fun of it because you can't be genuine as a teenager. Everything's got to be cynical and making fun of. And that's gosh, that's Shrek through and through. And, you know, just as an aside, this movie features a song on the soundtrack that was very much a product of the time. Somebody once told me. (laughs) Shrek coming out of the One of a hundred movies, I'm sure, that that song appeared in around this time. Came out first, though, in 1999's Mystery Men. You know what? And thank you for giving Mm -hmm. that movie a plug. I will always be happy to give coverage to that movie. Um, It can't be denied. That's just through and through a great song that everybody will sing along with. Hey, now you're an all-star. Love it. Smash Mouth. But yeah. We appreciate you. First Academy Award winning animated film that's starting to venture off into more adult territory as far as the content is concerned. But then as Pixar starts coming out with pitching these ideas, these are not only not really kid ideas, But they're just great stories, like I said, that happen to be animated films, right? Um, And we're seeing that with movies like Finding Nemo, which is very kid-friendly, don't get me wrong. And we're seeing it especially with movies like The Incredibles, which on the surface, oh, that's just a superhero movie. No, Brad Bird, the director and writer of that movie... Uh, who has always kind of done things that aren't really kid movie first. It's not a kid movie first. Like the Iron, Iron Giant, Giant right, is pretty right heavy, before right? before we turned the calendar. Right. He has gone on record and saying, I made a movie about a family that just happened to, they just happened to be superheroes, right? So it's the story that is starting to be first and foremost the most important part of these films. And again, Finding Nemo, Monsters, Inc., sure, the uh, they're very much kid movies, right? But they have solid stories that have some very heavy themes in them that we're going to see even more as we progress along through this decade. Cars Lightning McQueen is not like a kid. Like, he's a cocky, he seems like a teenager. He seems like a young adult that thinks that they know everything and thinks that they've been given everything on a silver platter and he has to be brought down to earth by going to this small town, Radiator Springs, and get to know the people that race for the true meaning of racing you know and that can be any sport put it into whatever you want but doing it for the right reasons as opposed to for the fame and for the glory and then ratatouille where everyone can cook here's here's more of a shift though because this these are movies where it's like what are you thinking pixar like what do you this is not a kid's movie at all and i think it's when people started realizing oh they've never really been making kids movies they've been making movies that tell a great story that are accessible to anyone, right? And Ratatouille, yeah. You're you're doing what? You're you're making a movie about a rat who can cook? Oh, okay. Well, you made these really good hits leading up to this, so I guess we'll trust you. And what? we all trusted oh Pixar my because they could yes. not miss through the 2000s. Not a one was a misstep, and it wasn't until we got passed into the 2010s, you Brave. know, 
where things started going that downhill. That dinosaur movie, The Good Dinosaur. The Good Dinosaur. Cars 2. We got prequels like Monsters U. But this original run in the 2000s, no studio has had a better decade than what Pixar gave us. And and right towards the end is where they started getting nominated for not just the animated feature, which they were dominating, but best picture. And you're talking, of course, about Toy Story 3 and Up. Up. In 2009 and 2010, opposite, respectively. Up, I have to say, is probably... um, Probably the first movie that floored me by Pixar, right? I mean, we knew that Ratatouille and Wally were going to be quirky and off the beaten path. Told Wally great being stories. My favorite that we've kind of skipped over here. I I do love Wally. Don't get me wrong, but Up was the first movie that I went into thinking, okay, it's going to be this light, peppy movie about this old guy taking a ride in his house with all these helium-filled balloons. But then those first five minutes hit you. And all of a sudden, the entire movie theater is in tears. That I mean, I know a lot of people are of the mindset that that movie should have existed as a short film on its own. Cole maybe probably thinks, one of them. thinks that way. But uh, this movie for me came out at the perfect time because this was right after my wife and I got married. And so you better believe that even if we weren't ready to have kids at that point, we were going to be having kids. And so to see that couple go through that struggle that so many real-life couples go through of just having that desire and that dream just crushed. Um, And then to have the movie go in a totally different direction about – you know what? You can go out and make another dream. Like you don't have to put all of your eggs in one basket. This house is just a house, right? The adventure is with the people that you meet and love and that you have in your life. And it's the things that you do and the memories that you create, not necessarily about the location of those memories, right? Because really it's the people and the love that you create. That's that's what life and that's what home is all about, right? The oh, 2000s man. certainly belonged to these heavy Pixar stories, yes. but there was other animation happening and, and other people like pushing the boundaries of animation. Back Types over, of animation, yeah, Back right? over in Disney even, um, we weren't getting those traditional fairy tales, even though the 90s Disney renaissance is held up as such a great time for Disney studios. My favorite Disney movie of all time came out in the 2000s with The Emperor's New Groove, just a fun buddy <laughs> movie between oh my David Spade and John Goodman. Yes. Going through this adventure, oh, you know, to get to know one another and to get to like each other. Atlantis, The Lost Empire. And then movies like Treasure Planet and Tarzan. Again, just 1999, right there in the 2000s when we were experimenting with different ways to animate. The deep canvas and the way that we could do a tracking shot like you had an actual camera, but it was all drawn and, and generated in computers first. Yeah, Polar Express, where they're using motion capture. Yeah, Zemeckis might have gone too far <laughs> in the 2000s, but we were doing different things. Je- I'm, I'm hearing Jeff Goldblum in my head just because, you know, he could doesn't mean that he should. Doesn't mean right? he should. So um, it's interesting because I was very vocal in this conversation about how important it is to start with a good story, right? But then you bring up movies like Emperor's New Groove. I've always considered Emperor's New Groove to be kind of like the modern day, which is interesting because it's almost 20 years old, right? But kind of like the modern day 
uh, Jungle Book. You just have this fun and easy, breezy, uh, buddy movie where it's just about the ride and not so much about uh, the story, right? So, yeah, the story of The Emperor's New Groove, the story of Jungle Book, it takes a backseat to just the very clever and witty dialogue that you see and hear delivered by these amazing performers. In The Jungle Book, we, we've talked about how, you know, um, we talked about this in our Robin Williams episode, how gone are the days where they're hiring voice actors that are just genuinely good actors and know how to act in these animated performances. Um, but then also you get a sense that for David Spade and Emperor's New Groove, they they wrote that part with him in mind, and I can guarantee you he improvised some of that dialogue, right? Um, interesting, interesting that, uh, yeah, even when story takes a backseat, you can still put on a pretty good animated movie. It was a fun time in animation because we were seeing these different kinds of animation, but not all the animation was totally ready. Uh, Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius came out in the early 2000s <laughs> that spawned a TV show that was much better. If you go back and watch it with our current eyes, Ooh, the animation yeah. looks really bad. On the other side of the world, though, we were seeing some of the prettiest animation of all time with Studio Ghibli making some of their best stuff in the 2000s. Spirited Away started the decade, and it got it got better from there. Those are some of the more iconic animated movies in world cinema, too. Yeah. Well, what a great decade for animation, and there's, there are still many more great animated films to come out. I'm I'm hopeful that it won't be so much focused on the almighty dollar like we saw in the 2010s with even some of these Pixar movies. But uh, so wait, you're not going to see the Minions: Rise of Gru when it comes out? I have children, so the answer is probably uh-huh. yes, I will. But also because there hasn't been much in the movie theaters in the way of kids' movies, so yes, I probably will be seeing it. And I don't know, maybe I'll uh, I'll take a book to read or something. During it's a that. different kind of animated movie that we've ended up getting now in the 2010s and 2020s because Pixar had these high concepts and they set their groundwork in the 2000s. And we've fallen off of it. I I cannot remember the last great animated movie. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Probably my favorite recent animated movie. Klaus would be my favorite recent animated film that, you know, again, makes use of traditional 2D animation. So, uh, yeah, check that out if you haven't already on Netflix. Definitely one that you want to watch every year from now on around Christmas time. When we return, we're going to be talking about one or two other trends that we've seen in the early 2000s decade, as well as, as always, doing a little panning for good. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Cannonball! Man, nothing matches being a teenager in the (laughs) mid-2000s and having Will Ferrell deliver that line in Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Oh, wow, Cole. 
Yeah, we're seeing a trend in the early 2000s as well with some of what is known as the frat pack movies coming out. So in the early days of the entertainment industry, there was the Rat Pack. And then in the 80s, a lot of the kids that were in those John Hughes movies, picture Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, they were known as the Brat Pack. Well, fast forward into the mid-2000s and you get this group of folks like Will Ferrell uh, that are known as the Frat Pack, Ben Stiller, Vince Vaughn, Owen and Luke Wilson both are kind of in these (laughs) movies together. And then John C. Riley joined, too. And it's this kind of group of just stoner comedy is this kind of the genre that they got lumped into. But some of them are really, really good. A lot of them are directed or produced by Judd Apatow originally, where you just get a group of funny people together conceptually. And then figure out the movie as you go. You know, you let them do a lot of the improv with one another as the movie comes together. And some of the script goes by the wayside so much that like a guy like Paul Rudd, who is in Anchorman, is given screenwriting credit when he goes on to do Ant-Man later on because he's doing so much improv on the set that they give him part of the screenwriting. (laughs) And that was born here in the 2000s and the Lucy Goose set style that Judd Apatow established that was born over on Freaks and Geeks on TV in the late 90s. There's always a, a journey that we get before something happens. The frat pack is one thing. The splat pack. Oh boy, this is, is gonna be another. right up Cole's alley. I can tell. I get, I get at least thirty seconds to just mention a few <laughs> rated horror horror movies that came very popular in the two thousands, like Saw and Cabin Fever and Hostel, where we just got into buckets and buckets of blood. And so Lee Wanell and James Wan, Eli Roth, and the, the fellows that were making these movies in the mid-2000s that just loved spraying you with as much fake blood as you can, that that was a trend. It did was you, a mini trend. Cole, did you seesaw? Seesaw I, seashells by the seesaw. I just seesawed the other day with my kids. There you go. I've I did not, seen... Okay, to be clear, I did not watch the movie Saw with my kids, all right? But there's you also seesawed. the seesaw on the playground. Seesaw yeah. as opposed to seed saw. Saw I've seed? seen I, I eight saw different seed. saws. Anyway, we could go on forever like this, but I'm sure people don't want us to. A couple mini trends that were existent in these 2000 decade. And then one more that I, I want to talk about more when we get to the 90s and really originated there. But the nature of the Oscar winners came to fruition in the 2000s, especially right at the end of the decade. Hurt Locker beats out Avatar, cementing the fact that it's low budget over big box office gross that apparently now matters in film. However, it's also around this time when you get a movie that Cole has gone on record and saying this is his favorite movie. Um, people are enraged that this movie did so well at the box office, was such a good solid movie just in general that it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, although one of its actors did win an actor posthumously. And that was Heath Ledger. So one thing I want to talk to, to talk about here, other than the fact that now that we're past that era of the early 2000s, we are starting to see more commercially successful movies being nominated once again. Only because they're letting 10 movies get nominated. Right. So you give some lip service to Black Panther and Bohemian True. Rhapsody, even though they're really good and should just get nominated because you get eight other spots to nominate the the highfalutin fluff. 
But the reason I want to bring this up is because I now want to ask that all-important question that I teased at the beginning. Cole, what is your favorite movie from the 2000s decade? The correct answer, my personal answer, and the most Cole true answer that I can give is, of course, The Dark Knight, the best movie of all time and the best movie of the 2000s. Okay, Man, Cole, you really had me second-guessing myself this entire time because, I mean, there were some amazing movies that came out, and some in the same year. Like 2007, we got No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. Certainly— And Zodiac. Certainly not movies that are family-friendly or that I would sit down and watch with my kids. Neither have I uh, watched—I have not watched Saw with my kids, and I have not watched There Will Be Blood with my kids. Let it be known. Every single week, Jeff needs to remind the audience that he has not seen the movie (laughs) Saw with his nine-year-old child. Yes, but one movie that uh, I also cannot really watch with my kids because it's it's a little bit—it cuts a little too deep for her. And I'm not sure why, but my nine-year-old really struggles with movies— where people are abandoned or, you know, somebody dies. And so we have to be very selective about the movies we show, uh, my nine-year-old anyway. And she never wants to watch this movie again, but it's one that I would not mind revisiting with my wife frequently, maybe every year on our anniversary. And it's a movie we've already talked about. And it is 2009's Up which was nominated for Best Picture. It did win Best Animated Feature, and it won Best Original Score, which is huge because... Absolutely. I bought the soundtrack. Everybody was humming that that tune and looking up that video clip on YouTube. It's just a, a great all-around movie that... It gives me all the feels that I want to have going to the movies. I want to leave that movie feeling like I can go tackle life again. Like, I feel optimistic about the future and that I feel more in love with my wife than I did, than I was before the movie started, right? Those are all the feels that I want to have, similar to like A Princess Bride, which certainly did not come out in the 2000s, but is also one of my favorite movies. Producer Avery, what's your favorite movie of the 2000s? Thank you for asking, Cole. Um, We've already talked about this director a little bit. Jeff was just talking about him, but Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, he came out with There Will Be Blood in 2007, a massive critical hit but i i think my favorite movie of the 2000s decade is his 2002 movie punch drunk love starring adam sandler Sandman. you know my favorite thing if i had to say something nice about the movie popeye and we mentioned the movie popeye when we had our discussion about robin williams which you can hear in another episode of screen cleaning is the song he needs me which i don't necessarily like it in the movie popeye but when they remix it and repurpose it for that movie, Punch Drunk Love, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's magical, yep. right? Yeah. That's just – I mean that's that's such a – I don't know. I mean you have Adam Sandler playing a more serious borderline comedic role. You have Philip Seymour Hoffman playing a great bit character as a scummy phone scam operator. Also a comedic role. <laughs> also yeah. a comedic role. And he's – I should say Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is based out of Provo, Utah in that oh, movie. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, unique for us here at BYU. It's, Additional humor. Yeah, and it's a great love story, um, though it doesn't always, though it might not seem like it at first viewing. If I'd asked you this question in the year 2010, would your answer be the same? Um, have, have your probably have your tastes shifted in the past ten years? I I would probably stick with up. 
Although there's no denying how good The Dark Knight is in those other two movies from 2007 we already mentioned, as far as a pure cinematic experience, I don't think you can beat The Dark Knight. I had my greatest cinematic experience of the decade in the last year when I watched Avatar in 3D IMAX. Holy cow, yeah. That one, if you'd asked me in 2010, I would have said Dark Knight 1 and then Avatar 2 and maybe V for Vendetta 3, right? Mm-hmm. I was into these like dude movies back yeah. then. But Avatar on on rewatches on smaller screens where you actually do think about the story that's behind all the fluff animation and pretty colors does not hold up as well as some of the others from the decade. As far as the the computer animation is concerned? It looks beautiful. Okay, okay. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, obviously there was no bigger movie at the time and up until recently was the highest grossing movie ever. Nobody talks about Avatar anymore, which is interesting because now over a decade later, we're finally getting a sequel to it. Titanic was the big box office champion in the decade before Avatar, and I can still defend Titanic as one of the great movies ever made. And there's a reason why it captured the cultural zeitgeist, and we do still talk about it now. Avatar was a little bit more frills and bells and whistles, I think. And that's what drove people in droves to the theaters and and also picked up the extra money from the 3D tickets. Cole, to wrap up our conversation of the 2000s decade, I want to mention another type of animation that we have not yet mentioned. And it's going to be part of our Panning for Good segment here today. There's good in them dire hills. Cole, I remember in junior high discovering the shorts of Wallace and Gromit from Ardman Studios. And so I was thrilled when in the early 2000s, we not only got Chicken Run, which was a massive hit. Everybody went to go see Chicken Run. But we also got Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Now that this best animated feature category is is a thing, that movie went on to win that prize in 2005. And so I have a great and deep appreciation for claymation, which is something that Ardman Studios really specializes in. And again, not only is it a, a, a sight to behold, but again, they just have a solid script with characters that you love and care about. And they're all movies that you can watch with the entire family without any hesitation or pause. Check out Chicken Run and Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Apparently technology, the theme of the new millennium, as we look about back at the movies that crafted the 2000s and that moved us forward into the 2010s and 2020, 2021 beyond where we sit today. We wouldn't have this technological innovations that we have now if it wasn't for people trying and sometimes failing, but sometimes succeeding at new things in that new millennium. Thank you to the movies of the 2000s decade. And that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We are here each and every week on BYU Radio to bring to you the very best in entertainment. We like to shine a spotlight on the good in entertainment. A lot of people like to focus on the gossipy, more negative aspects of the entertainment industry. We're going to bring you the very best, and we're going to pan for good and search a little harder to find those things that we want to make you aware of so you can enjoy them with your families. 
I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we'll see you next time.